Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastick. In 2018, the writer Ling Ma published Severance, which promptly won several literary prizes, but only hit the big time in 2020. The novel follows Candace Chen, who continues to go to her unfulfilling job in the middle of a global pandemic that slowly fills the world with slack-jawed zombies. You can guess why it was popular. This fall, Ma is back with a new collection of stories, Bliss Montage, which imagines a number of other surreal scenarios, such as a drug that makes you invisible, a dream job that just might open a literal door into a dream world, and a manual on Yeti lovemaking. One of Ma's characters lives in an L.A. mansion with her hundred ex-boyfriends. Another visits her husband's homeland, where people bury themselves alive in an annual festival in the hopes of curing their physical or psychic ills. Bliss Montage's eight stories are, above all, about the fictions we tell ourselves to survive the delusions of modern life. Ling Ma is an assistant professor at the University of Chicago, where she joins us to talk about Bliss Montage. Thanks so much for talking to me about these surreal stories, Ling. (laughs) Thank you so much, Stephanie. (laughs) So how's it feel to talk about something other than how prescient and prophetic your pandemic novel was? Yeah, well, you know, I never know how to answer interview questions, so I always feel like I'm starting from scratch anyway. (laughs) Well, let's talk about your new book, your new collection of stories. Um, It's called Bliss Montage. Why'd you settle on that phrase? You know, it comes from this film historian, but what does it mean to you? Yeah, it is a term, um, I guess a term in film studies that refers to sort of that edited sequence um, of where the character or the protagonist is experiencing sort of a lot of pleasure, um, sort of like a joy spree, um, you know, and you find that in a lot of uh, films, popular films, you know, Home Alone, um, a lot of rom-coms you'll find that in. um, But for me, at least as a fiction writer, I like to start with the enjoyable moments for the character first. Like, I like to start with fantasy. I like to start with joy. Um, You know, part of what sort of springboarded me into writing Severance was the fantasy of, oh, she doesn't have to go to work anymore. (laughs) What needs to happen so that she doesn't have to go to work anymore? And so I, my angle (laughs) in writing fiction often, you know, starts with something with an enjoyment with some sort of fantasy I maybe that I want my characters to inhabit and I would say in many cases the stories in Bliss Montage that's how I sort of started but what I found is that often when you try to inhabit fantasy it usually turns nightmarish (laughs) for reasons I'm not I'm not exactly sure about I mean of course, we know with Severance how it turns nightmarish. I think many of the stories here in Bliss also uh, turn a bit nightmarish. Yeah. Or start kind of nightmarish. You know, it's not necessarily clear when the fantasy ends or when the nightmare begins and vice versa. That's true. Yeah. I usually, I don't always start a story from the beginning. I Sometimes I will begin it from like the middle just as a way to get into it. You know, I 
start the stories very blindly, but I do believe that there's something within the impulse to start a certain story. Um, I just kind of play out that impulse and see where it leads me. I, it's kind of like this blind faith that this impulse is tapping into some kind of anxiety. <laughs> so let's play it out and see where it leads. When I talk about, you know, my writing after the fact, after the book is done, after the story is written, I I often find myself assigning intentionality after the fact, but usually I'm just kind of in the, like, oh, I meant to do this. Yes, I meant to <laughs> write this capitalist critique, but usually I'm just kind of blindly following some something. <laughs> For instance, Los Angeles, I thought it was about maybe the fantasy of being I was watching a lot of Real Housewives at the time, I should say, too, but um, I thought it was the fantasy of, like, living this wealthy life as, like, an artist and still being able to live extremely well as, like, a writer and an artist and being able to bankroll, like, your creative ex-boyfriends or something. I did not think that that story was going to be about abuse. I really did not know that's where we were going in that story, um, when I started it anyway. By the time I completed it and had a final draft, it made a lot of sense. It was like, oh, okay, I can see how this story was always going there. But yeah, there's a, definitely a mystery to the process. You know, the bliss montage in those movies that you mention is often a scene of escapism mm -hmm. in a way, uh, escaping reality, you know, Kevin in Home Alone just like running wild with his mom's credit card and being yeah. able to escape childhood and his, and his house. Um, but is all fantasy escapism to you? Do you think they're synonyms? I don't think all fantasy is escapism, but I think um, often it's sort of that uh, point in the horizon that you're always trying to go towards and that you're probably never going to reach. It's very rare that you reach that point of inhabiting total fantasy. Um, but and usually, you know, when you do, it's maybe a delusion or something, or maybe it's a misperception um, when you think you finally reached it. Um, maybe that's what's interesting to me about fantasy but you know it's fun to just to maybe think about some some sort of fantasy some sort of wish fulfillment um and put the character in that situation and then let's see how it plays out um because in our actual day-to-day -day lives we never really get there we never really get the chance to inhabit total fantasy whatever that means um and so I think in fiction, it's a one place to start, at least for me, is let's drop them into the fantasy. But yeah, in my day-to-day -day life, it's just, you know, a point on the horizon. Let's talk about the wish in G, which is one of my favorite stories mm -hmm. in the collection, uh, which is, I would say, the wish to disappear. Mm -hmm. You know, what does the wish to disappear mean for that narrator who is a woman, who's a Chinese-American woman living in New York? Well, starting from just with a female character, um, I did want to write a story that 
um, dealt with bodies and sort of our women's sort of tortured relationships with their bodies um, and how it's difficult to maybe physically inhabit ourselves or, or feel really anchored in our bodies. Um, and, you know, this is also coming from, uh, I used to work at Playboy. So um, thinking about the way that um, women's bodies are often scrutinized. And I, I think maybe the fantasy about disappearing or about being invisible has to do with removing that <laughs> scrutiny and like total freedom, right? I think that pressure maybe gets a little bit that desire to have that freedom maybe becomes a little bit intensified, um, at least in the story about two Chinese American girls who are often very competitive with one another. And, you know, I grew up in the Chinese American community and it was a very competitive environment among my peers as far as like who got better SAT scores or who went to what college. Um, and that competition, at least in G, also veers over to the way that these two friends um, compare their bodies. And also thinking about sort of Asian um, body standards for women, which are even thinner, <laughs> uh, even more, I feel like, restrictive. That was the idea. Um, when I first started the story, all I knew was it was about two friends. They were going to spend one last time together before one friend leaves. Um, I didn't know about the drug until later. Um, and oh, I had sort of some scenes sketched out for years just in my files. And then when I realized, oh, actually they take a drug and it's going to be a fantastical drug, that's when the story sort of clicked into place. I think the initial fun of writing the story was imagining like the physical sensation of what it would be like to not be looked at or not be scrutinized. How does that freedom sort of manifest as like physical sensation? So that was sort of got me into finishing that story. Yeah, I read that a lot of these stories started from scraps that you found in your files of half-finished stories or just ideas um, that you returned to during the pandemic when we were all extremely isolated. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that so many of the stories deal with relationships with other people. You know, many of them are romantic, but we also have between two girls, a mother and daughter, an academic and her mentor. Was there something about being alone that made you want to explore being with other people? Is that a dumb <laughs> question? <laughs> no, I think I understand what you're saying. I was surprised during like the pandemic when I was maybe more isolated from people like what what would bubble up in my mind more frequently and often it was relationships with people um you know um some unresolved relationships things that could have happened differently um I yeah I was surprised that that's what came back during like my time of isolation. I thought I would read a lot more philosophy or something more. Um, but instead, those were the memories that came back. Yeah, it's also about, you know, the relationship of the self to itself, you know, and the stories we tell about ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I thought it was interesting that you, you've said that Severance was the first time you wrote an explicitly Chinese-American character. Yeah. Um, and then in Bliss Montage, we have, unless I'm mistaken, pretty much everybody is from that community. What necessitated mm-hmm. the, like, the switch for you? And, you know, what vistas did that open up or maybe even close? I, while writing Severance, I was working through some of my hangups about writing a story featuring a Chinese American character that wasn't entirely about identity and wasn't entirely about immigration, although it was about those things too. Um, And I just realized um, it was important for me to have Candace Chen from Severance, like be featured in an post-apocalyptic, you know, narrative, immigrant, an immigrant narrative, a uh, coming-of-age narrative, a sort of work sort of narrative. Um, It was important that I set her in several types of narratives in which uh, Asian American characters aren't typically featured. Um, And I guess after that, I just thought, why can't I just keep doing this? I can write, I, I hope this is not too confident of me, but I can credibly write a white character, like, <laughs> in my sleep. Um, I did feel like there's a deficiency of um, narratives that feature, I guess, Asian American <laughs> characters. And I thought, maybe on a superficial level, I thought, why can't these main characters be Chinese American. That is the viewpoint that I understand. Um, but it was just, I can write several different types of narratives and the main characters can be Asian. Like, why can't I do that? Uh, I know these, it sounds almost too simple or too reductive, but it took me a while to, I guess, get there. (laughs) I mean, I grew up with you know, the reigning novel, uh, like in the 90s, was like Amy Tan, Joy Luck Club, and everything was just all immigrant narratives. And I, I guess I want to be able to cast these Asian American women in a wide variety of narratives that aren't just about immigration or identity. It's funny that you said, like, I hope it doesn't sound too self-confident to say that I could write a white character in my sleep because I feel like there's a lot of white authors who wouldn't couch their ability to write any kind of character in that kind of confidence you know (laughs) I wonder do you feel like injecting sort of elements of fantasy as a way of like complicating the reader's desire to say project your experience as Ling Ma Chinese American onto the experience of the Chinese American characters you've invented or is that you know, not really a consideration when you're thinking of the, you know, the surrealism or the fantasy that crops up here. I think um, introducing like some kind of fantastical element, um, it does certain things. It puts the story outside of the realm of the everyday. Um, And I think for me, at least as a writer, it tends to force certain issues to the surface in a way that I can't seem to make happen in a straight up realist story and a story rooted in realism um and so that's why so i guess in the example with the story g 
um, using that drug, I think that drug became a tool of assertion and dominance within the power dynamics of this friendship. It literalizes, I think, some of their desires. Well, in this case, Bonnie's desire in a way I, you know, I can't always quite make happen in, I guess, in the realm of the everyday. There are some stories that do take place in both realms or maybe characters that have it both realms. I'm thinking of the first two stories, Los Angeles and Oranges. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a a character that shows up in both of them who abused the narrator in their relationship. I felt anyway that it was like two stories from the same perspective or from the same character or maybe from two different perspectives in the same character. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? And um, I guess the desire to tell not this story really, but like this relationship in these two modes. Yeah, I did see Los Angeles and Oranges as a story pairing. Um, I wrote Los Angeles like years and years ago. I think it's one of the older stories in this book. Um, But Oranges I wrote during the pandemic, mostly, so several years after. Um, I, and I guess... Los Angeles sort of ends with a chase and um, Oranges begins with a following and both stories deal with um, with abuse, like physical abuse within relationships. And to me, many of these stories are, I'm trying to experiment and play around um, just as a writer. And I wanted to approach the same topic, um, but from different angles. I guess Los Angeles is maybe the more fantastical version and Oranges is the more uh, is the story that's rooted in straight up realism. I think there's only two stories in the collection that are rooted in realism. It would be Oranges and Peking Duck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to ask about Peking Duck because I feel like especially in that story, you're you're almost daring the reader to map you Ling Ma, Chinese American writer onto like character X, Chinese American character. And and here we have the narrator who is um, she's like a second ish generation Chinese American writing a story about her mother. Can you talk about that story? Yeah. When I was a kid, I read Iron and Silk a few times. It's a memoir by Mark Saltzman. It's about this Yale grad who uh, goes to China in the 80s to teach English. And this is really at the beginning um, when China was starting to open up to the West. Um, And often it was the initial sort of exchanges were like scholarly exchanges. Um, So he was among the first uh, at that time to go. Um, And I, you know, as a kid who was born in the 80s, to me, this reading this book, his memoir, became this way of thinking of like, oh, this would have been what this would be what it was like to live in China, like in the 80s. Um, This is what living there was like. And, you know, correctly or incorrectly, it was just sort of a book that I had, I felt like a close a connection to in some way. And I did notice <laughs> later on in my MFA, the Lydia Davis, uh, it's a very short story. It's like about a paragraph long, I believe, uh, that takes from uh, the Mark Saltzman uh, 
memoir and reframes that anecdote. So the anecdote in the memoir is they're in a class. They have to write an essay about their happiest moment. One of the students talks about how his happiest moment was going to、uh, Beijing and eating this duck. And at the end of the class, he approaches the teacher, Mark Saltzman, and says, "Actually, that's not my happiest moment. It's actually my wife who went to Beijing and ate this duck. But she's told it to me so many times that I that I feel like it's also my happiest moment."、Um, So it, it's already an anecdote about reframing, and then Lydia Davis reframes it again in her story, "Happiest Moment." It's reframed again. It takes the view of someone who's read <laughs> this anecdote from a book, and I started just thinking about reframing, and I started thinking about how, you know, myself as an immigrant writer,、um, this idea of taking. Something from I'm a, I guess I'm a 1.5 generation immigrant. Taking something from like, like my parents' stories or something, their immigrant stories, and and repurposing them in、uh, fiction or in or in whatever piece of writing. But it's very much with like a Western audience in mind, and. Thinking about that kind of reframing, I feel like something there's something lost in translation in that process, and I question whether, you know, the younger generation of writers can really ever give any real accurate depictions of、um, their parents' experiences,、um, and so I guess this story, Peking Duck. It's a series of framings and reframings,、um, and it really was my questioning, like, you know, how accurate are these?、Um, are we able to render our parents' experiences?、Um, and what is getting lost in the process? And you know, there's something a little bit uneasy about. Taking ownership over somebody else's experiences and presenting it to the audience, especially as an Asian immigrant presenting it to a Western audience, there's always something that gets lost. And there are certain things that I think are made culturally more culturally palatable, <laughs>、um, given the audience in mind.、Um, I don't know. It was a it's a cynical story for me. It's a little bit cynical, and I was really thinking aloud as I was writing it. Yeah, it feels a, like a very cynical story from both perspectives because we have the daughter, the writer,、uh, appropriating her mother's story, and then we have a, a conversation between the two of them.、Um, yeah, <laughs> and in that one, you know, it's like it's not like the mom has the right story either. You know, do we ever really have the right story about each other? Because,、um, you know, the mother sort of challenges the daughter's perspective and is like. Were you trying? You weren't trying to capture my experience, and then, you know, also says, "But you had a great childhood." I set a good example for you, and the daughter resists that characterization. So it's like nobody is、yeah. able to appropriate the story of anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> that's right.、Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I don't want to ask. Like, well, did you show this story to your mother? <laughs> I try to, you know, avoid those kind of autobiographical questions, but I really felt like this. 
this book was like a dare to the reader. <laughs> I do want to ask, though, about this this passage um, in the story where our narrator, the writer, says, English is just a play language to me, the words tethered to their meanings by the loosest, most tenuous connections. So it's easy to lie. I tell the truth in Chinese. I make up stories in English. I don't take it that seriously. When I'm finally enrolled in first grade, I tell classmates that I live in a house with an elevator with deer in the backyard. It is the language in which I have nothing to lose, even if they don't believe a thing I say. But then our narrator loses her fluency in Chinese. She can no longer speak Mandarin, and she's just left with English. Um, I'm curious, as someone who grew up bilingual, who did learn English as a second language, is, Mm -hmm. like, what's your relationship to the English language versus the Chinese language? Um, I'm definitely more fluent in English um, now than I am in Chinese. Um, You know, I really have lost, aside from what my speaking in Chinese to my parents and maybe like a few friends, I really lost a lot of my uh, fluency in Mandarin, really. Um, I would describe the experience as kind of walking into another room and then having the door lock behind you (laughs) and not realizing that it locked behind you. I feel like that describes my experience of losing some of my proficiency in Mandarin. Mm -hmm. The question too is, is like, as a young kid, how much are you really agreeing to consciously? Like, do you know what you're losing? I had the same thing with German happen. I used to be fully bilingual and had like a really heavy Viennese accent because my mom's Austrian. Oh, wow. But I lost it when I was a teenager because I was like, I don't, I don't wonder if this was your experience too. It was like not cool to speak German. And I was like, well, nobody else is doing this. Like, why should I do it? What, like, why should I hold on to this thing? Yeah. Well, also, I would occasionally as a kid be put in the role of being more of like a translator for other members of my family. I would say they're pretty proficient in English, but maybe just like cultural translator. I felt almost as if I were an ambassador of like American culture or something and trying to translate it to my parents. And so I felt almost as if I needed to learn more, be a little more American (laughs) to be like a bridge or something. Mm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So I wanted to ask about this other passage. I mean, coming off of Peking Duck, a couple stories before it is returning, um, Mm -hmm. which is about the relationship of uh, a husband and wife. And they're both writers, um, which sounds like a very tricky relationship to navigate. <laughs> and <laughs> we're narrating from the the wife's perspective. And she's talking mm-hmm. about her husband here. And she says, in preparation for home buying, he was teaching an extra evening class about fiction and memoir called Truths and Half-Truths. They discussed autobiography and autobiographical fiction, the shaded differences. I knew his shtick. First, he would bring up the topic of alternate selves, talk about fiction's capacity for stretching memoir, for deepening autobiography. Fiction can be a space for the alternate self, he would tell them, drawing an iceberg on the dry erase board, its above-water shape and its underwater enormity. It often serves as a fantasy space for our other selves. Actually, he said subliminal space. Is that a class that you would teach, or do you feel differently? I think I taught a course on memoirs, um, on personal essays before, um, and I did make that 
case um, before. Actually, I have drawn that iceberg <laughs> before to my undergrad students. Uh, but I, I think with fiction, for me, I'm not interested in replicating experience. I think the whole point or what it's best used for is going beyond experience, like trying to access some something that you cannot access in your everyday life. Um, that is the, really the value of fiction for me. And I think why, for me personally, why it's a much, it's a much more potent form to work with. You can access some kind of wisdom, some kind of insight that you cannot access just from your own experience alone. And so the point of fiction is to go, for me, is to go beyond experience. It's not to replicate experience. I am certainly, I'm, I'm sure some of my stories are informed um, with personal details from my life, but that's just mere scaffolding. <laughs> like it's scaffolding to get to something else, somewhere that I've, I've personally never been before. We have links in the show notes to Ling Ma's new book, Bliss Montage, as well as her previous novel, Severance, in case you didn't fill up 2020 with reading pandemic novels. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>